something about that name, amen? Master, Savior, Jesus. As we come to this time of worship in the word, we come to our second sermon in the series seven. And as we spoke last week, each time that we will come to a passage, we're going to read the whole chapter. So I ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. ask you to stand as we read the infallible, inerrant word of God. Revelation, chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits that are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierce him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha And the Omega says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that is in Jesus Christ, was on the island Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit. On the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamon, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of of those lampstands, one 
like the Son of God, clothed in a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am forevermore. And I have the keys to death in Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the church and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. May God be blessed by his glorious word being spoken. You may be seated. This book of Revelation was written by John, the beloved disciple, who also wrote the Gospel of John and the epistles, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. As we saw last week, John made it plain to us what type of book he was writing here. It was a revelation. Revelation, apocalypse, to, means to show, to reveal, to make known. This type of Jewish literature was very familiar to the first century church, both Jews and Christians. They would have been acquainted with other prophetic books like Daniel and Ezekiel and Zephaniah. Prophetic books use symbols and visions and pictures to tell the story. So we see here that John wants to show a heavenly perspective on history. He wants to show us the story of Jesus Christ from his first advent to his second advent. We learned last week when we read Revelation 1, 7, or Revelation 1 and 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, and blessed are those who keep what is written in them, for the time is near. When you think about it, the very fact that John is telling us that this is a book of prophecy means that this is God's word that was given to a prophet. We see here that this is God's word given to an angel, and the angel gives it to the servant, John. John is relying on this message of truth to bring us to the understanding of the return of Jesus Christ. Never forget three things about the return of Jesus Christ. Number one, he comes to judge the world. 
Number two, he comes to raise the dead. And three, he comes to make all things new. You see, the book of Revelation was sent to real people like you and I in the first century church. The prophecy was sent to the seven churches around Asia Minor. And don't forget, there were many more churches than the seven around Asia Minor. This was like a mail route. But God also determined that this number seven would represent perfection and completeness. It's really based on the seven-day Sabbath cycle of the Old Testament. Throughout the whole Bible, you see God giving symbolic uh, tendencies or explanations and concepts to different things. You look at Genesis 9, 12 through 16, God makes, makes a rainbow, and it's a sign of his promise that he will not flood the earth again. You see back in Numbers 4 and 7 that God uses bread to represent his presence to his people. In John 6, 35, John tells us that Jesus is what? The bread of life. All the way through, the Bible gives us symbols. But there is something special about this number 7 in the Bible. The first use of the number seven goes back to Genesis 1. We see that God spends six days creating the heavens and the earth, and then he rests on the seventh day. This is our template for the seven-day week that is being observed all around the world. The seventh day was set apart for Israel for their Sabbath. It is set apart for their holy day. So right then, we start with the number seven. It's defined as something that is finished, something that is complete, something that is divine. When you continue through the word of God, you see that there are other times where seven is lifted up. Every animal before it was sacrificed needed to be what? Seven days old. Then we've got the command of the leprous, Naaman to bathe seven times in the Jordan River for a complete cleansing. And then we see Joshua, and he's told to walk around Jericho seven times. And there are seven priests, and then there are seven trumpets outside of the city walls. Now, what's really interesting to me is that on the sixth day of creation, God created man. And when we get to Revelations, we're going to see later on that six is the number of mankind. In fact, the number of the beast is called what? Six, six, six. Now, if God is saying seven is perfection, completeness, six always falls short of seven. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Six is not seven. Men always fall short. The best of men are men at best. So we see again, seven crops up in Genesis 7 and 2. You need seven pairs of clean animals on the ark. And then you've got seven stems of the lampstand in Exodus 25, 37. Seven qualities 
of the Messiah in Isaiah 11 and 2. Seven signs of the gospel in John. Seven things that the Lord hates in Proverbs 6, 16. Seven parables in Matthew 13. Seven woes in Matthew 23. And then you start to see multiples of seven. Seventy weeks. In Daniel 9, 24, that means 490 years. And then we see in Jeremiah 29 and 10 that it's predicted that the Babylonian captivity was last for 70 years. We see in the Gospel of John the sevenfold I am. We see Jesus uh, talk to Peter about when Peter asked him, how many times should I forgive someone? He says, 70 times seven. And then we see the seven bowls of the great tribulation in Revelation 16 and 1. The number seven is used more than 50 times in the book of Revelation alone. It's used over 700 times in the complete Bible. So we want to understand here that seven shows completeness, perfection, divine authority. Revelation 22, 18 through 19 says this. I warn everyone who hears the word of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book all in all sometimes seven is just seven but most times in the book here we see that seven means perfection completeness and divine authority that's why we gave you this booklet and that's why we call this series seven and we call it seven because of the structure of the book of revelation just look at it There's 22 chapters in Revelation, and you can divide them into seven pieces. And then you take those seven divisions, and you can show three times where it's repeated. And those three times that it's repeated tells the same story from a different vantage point. So it's important to understand that this story is teaching us from Jesus' first advent to his second coming. When it comes to these recapitulations, first we have seven seals. Look at chapters 6 through 8a. Then we have seven trumpets in chapters 8b through 11. And then finally, we have seven bowls in chapters 15 through 16. They are all repeating the same event. So it's important for us to see that our God has made his word plain to us so that we are blessed when we hear it read aloud. We are blessed when we live as it is telling us to live we are blessed when we keep it close to our heart and this morning 
we need to recognize that this wonderful, gracious, loving God, he is coming on the clouds. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the very meditations of my heart be found acceptable in your sight, for you are my Lord and my Redeemer. Prepare our hearts this morning, O Lord, for your son's Jesus Christ's arrival. Behold, he is coming on the clouds, he who was, he who is, and he who is to come. Behold, he is coming on the clouds, and he's coming to free those of us from our sins. Behold, he is coming on the clouds. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And all God's children said, Amen. Let's pick this right up at the start here. Let us look at the fact that he is coming on the clouds and it is he who is, he who was, and he who is to come. Look at verse 4 of Revelation 1. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits that are before the throne. We see here that John is writing to the seven churches in Asia Minor. He gives us a traditional greeting in this salutation. Uh, these churches have been selected because they're going to symbolize completeness. What is being implied here is that the whole church then and the whole church now is represented by what was going on in those particular seven churches. He starts off in this salutation by saying to us, grace and peace to you. Is this important, Pastor? It's very important because God's grace is his favor. It's given to those of us who do not deserve it. It is the pardoning of our sins. It is his bestowing upon of us the gift of eternal life. You know, the moment we think that we deserve grace, we are no longer thinking or talking about grace. So John goes on and he says, I give them peace. Peace is the very reflection of the smile of God. It tells the heart of the believer that they have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that is what gives us grace. So here, grace and peace are provided by the Father. Grace and peace are dispensed by the Holy Spirit. Grace and peace are are captured and given to us by the merits of Christ. We don't have any merits. We deserve nothing. Grace and peace to you, as I said earlier, were typical elements of a greeting in the New Testament church. John wants and John understands that the people of this first century church, they need grace and peace. They need to be able to persevere in their faith during this tribulation, especially with the incredible pressures for them to conform and to compromise before the world. We are still dealing with those same pressures. There, the world is asking us to compromise. The world is asking us to 
see the world only through their eyes and not through the eyes of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So John is asking, Lord, give them grace and peace. They need what the elder was praying for uh, this morning when he says that inner peace, that peace to the inner man, because they were dealing with such turmoil. They were dealing, and there's only one person when you're dealing with turmoil who can deal with the fluctuations of time and space and history, and that is our God. That is the one who is and was and is to come. The only one who can enable us to understand his commandments and then motivate us through obedience. You see, you and I must have confidence in God's sovereign guidance over all earthly things. That's the only thing that's going to give us the strength to stand up in the face of great difficulties. That's the only thing that's going to last us as the world tests our faith time and time and time again. So the one who is and who was and who is to come, that's a threefold clause that comes from Exodus 3.14. God said to Moses, and watch the way he said it here because it won't look the same way it does in the New Testament. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, said to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. Or it could be read, I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. This was a symbol throughout the Old Testament, this understanding of who God is. Isaiah 48, 12 through 13. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I have called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I called to them, they stood forth together. Then we see in Exodus 3, 6, I am now what I always was and always will be. God is not merely presenting himself as being there in the beginning or being there in the middle or being there at the end of history. He's saying that he is the sovereign God over all of history. The God who is able to bring prophecy to fulfillment. The God who is able to deliver his people despite overwhelming odds. The God who is able to build up or tear down any nation. Revelation eleven sixteen through 17. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, We give you thanks, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Revelation 16 and 5. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, just as you are, O holy one, who is and who was, you have brought these judgments. You see, something is dropped in both of these statements in 11 and then in chapter 16 because the God who is and was has come. So now you and I as saints, we can be persuaded to 
understand that our God is able to preserve us and all of our persecutors will be punished. John goes on and he talks about the seven spirits that are before the throne. Now, there are some people that said these seven spirits are seven archangels. There are people who said these seven angels are the seven trumpets and the bowls that we will see later in chapters 15. But that's not what's being explained here. This figurative description is the Holy Spirit. He's seven. He's complete. He's perfected. And he's one. And he's before the throne. Now, there's a Trinitarian twist here that you've got to pick up, but it's presented differently. You see in this, usually it's presented Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But look at the words here. Look at verse 4. Look what he says. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's the Father God. And from the seven spirits who are before the throne. That's the Holy Spirit. And from Jesus Christ. That's God the Son. He presents it in this order because it's important for us to see what he's presenting here. God is being viewed as dwelling in his heavenly tabernacle. Grace and peace represent the coming of the Father God who has dwelt above the Ark of Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And what happens secondly, the Spirit is indicated by the seven lamps in the holy places. And then Jesus Christ is lifted up because of his atonement and symbolized by his blood. So it is the Spirit of God that empowers the church so that the church might be effective in all things. The Holy Spirit is how God gives us grace and peace. It how it encourages us to be obedient witnesses. This idea of the seven spirits really comes from um, Zechariah chapter 4, uh, 2 through 7. Let's look at it, but let's look at Zechariah chapter 4, 1 through 6. Zechariah chapter 4, 1 through 6. And the angel who talked to me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold and with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other is on the left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked to me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. He said to me, this is a word to the Lord, Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This is that sevenfold blessing coming from the Messiah as he establishes uh, his end time reign. But now we see John gives us three outstanding descriptions 
of Jesus Christ, starting with the first one here in Revelation 5b, when he says, the faithful witness. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is most definitely the faithful witness. This describes Christ as being the one who has persevered, the one who has been preserved as faithful, a faithful witness to the Father God, even in the time of persecution, even to death, even to death on a cross. This Jesus has const- he's conquered and he has become the cosmic ruler of all the earth. The following chapters we'll see will reveal that all of these churches, the seven churches that he's writing these letters to, were tempted to compromise because their witness was being threatened by persecution and even to the point of death. They needed peace and grace to overcome. Revelation 12, as you were, Revelation 2 and 13. Look what he says to one of the churches. The churches Church at Ephesus, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. See, they held a line even when. Uh, They were threatened with death, even when one of God's faithful people held the line and was killed. I don't know if you recognize or not the origin of the word witness. The word in Greek is martus, but the word means martyr. To be a witness is to be willing to die for your testimony. Are you willing to die for your testimony, your faith, your belief in Jesus Christ? The way of life that he has prescribed for you and your family? You know how we have borders in our lives that we cannot just step out of these boundaries and do whatever we wish? That we must set an example? You know, there's another definition of being a witness and it is having the strength and the genuine faith to stand by Christ by when going undergoing a violent death. Believers like you and I have to take solace and courage in the promise that if we maintain our faithful witness despite of persecution, we too will reign with Christ and we will have the victory. First Peter 2, 19 through 25. Please listen to this. First Peter 2, 19 through 25. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin, you're beaten for it and you endure? But if when you do good and you suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. He's saying this is part, hey, this is part of the job. 
For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Then he tells you what Christ did. But he continued entrusting himself to him. Personal pronoun refers to God to him who judges justly. You will never get justice from this world. But everything is played out in the eyes of God who always judges justly. It goes on. He himself bore our sins on the boys, our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were like screaming sheep. But have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Another warning from Revelation 2. 10 through 11, still speaking to Ephesus. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. What is God's answer? Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So if you persevere, even unto death, you won't see the second death, which puts you into the lake of fire. These words, he who is and he who was and he who is to come, are written here to encourage us even when we're about to go into severe persecution to remind us that we should have confidence in Christ to remind us that Christ suffered the same things that sometimes we go through but he overcame them he, he has overcome the world and he given us, he's given us an incredible witness Luke eleven forty seven through 51. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your father, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God has said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel, you know, he takes them all the way back, Cain and Abel, right? From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this will be required of this generation. So Christ is shown as the faithful witness. Then he takes us to the second description, the firstborn and the third description, the ruler of the kings of the earth. 
the firstborn of the dead, that he was the first one to be resurrected as we will be resurrected on that great getting up morning. You know, Lazarus, Christ brought him back to life, but Lazarus died again. He had to get up a second time. But Jesus is the firstborn of those that will get up eternally. It's what John is trying to make sure we understand here. And this understanding of this ruler of the kings of the earth, that God holds all those who are in earthly authority in his hand. If, it's got a, if we have a bad king, it's because we're bad people. But he still holds them in his hand. So when we look at Psalm 88 and Psalm 89, we see something here about, speaks about David, the anointed king who will reign over his enemies. David, who will have a seed and establish his throne forever. John uses this idea of the Davidic king uh, but he takes it to an eschatological level that Christ, through his death and resurrection, will have an eternal uh, kingship uh, over his beloved children. He is still the faithful witness. Look at Isaiah 43, 10 through 12. Isaiah 43, 10 through 12. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am your God. Looking again at this firstborn understanding of Jesus Christ, he is a high privileged priest. Christ, because of his resurrection from the dead, has a position of royalty and shows great succession. Christ is the sovereign God over the cosmos. He is the first created being of all creation. Colossians 1.18 says it this way. Speaking of Christ, personal pronouns here refer to Christ. And he is the head of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He has kingship over every ruler on the earth, whether it is an antagonist or someone who is aligned with his rule. He still has kingship over them. And he is the one that is able to come and free us from our sins. Look at Revelation chapter 1, 5b through 7. Revelation chapter 1, 5b through 7. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, 
He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierce him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. This is amazing to me. You see, John is giving us a point-by-point understanding here, and then all of a sudden, you see John is overwhelmed after he tells us that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on the earth. He breaks into this spontaneous doxology of admiration and praise. Look what he says. To him who loves us and who has freed us from our sins by his blood. He gives credit where credit is due. I think it's so important here when he says we have been freed from sin and not just merely washed. We have been freed from sin and sin no longer holds us in captivity. And then he even takes us further. Look what he says. You know, my professor used to always tell me, all you have to do is read the Bible. All you got to do is just read it. And made us a kingdom, priest to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Do you see the switch here, the change? Before only Israel were called to be the kingdom and to be priests. That was only applied to them, but now it's applicable to the church of Jesus Christ. In the church Israel lives on. The church does not replace Israel. Jesus Christ is the true Israel. Can anybody read these words and still not maintain that Christ is the king of the church? Can anyone read these words and not want to give him glory? Revelation 4 and 11. Worthy are you our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So what happens next, Pastor? We see that Christ expresses his love by redeeming his people from their sins through his blood. We are released from the power and the penalty of sin when we identify by faith through Jesus Christ's sacrificial death. We see what Jesus is doing here as a priestly function. Sanctification and atonement, the same way that the priest in the Old Testament did it by the sprinkling of blood from a sacrificial animal, but Christ is using his own blood. He is a fulfillment of that Passover lamb, which was clearly illustrated back in Exodus 19, five through six. Listen to those words. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. You see this same portrait he's painting here is the same thing you see later on in Hebrews where Christ is portrayed both as the priest and as the sacrifice, the gift and the giver. It should give comfort to any afflicted believer. It should give hope that with all the things that are going on, the anguish, the wrath, the judgment, that our Christ, our God, from the foundations of the earth will keep us, will cover us, will protect us. And then John says something that's really amazing. Behold, he is coming on the clouds and every eye will see him, comma, even those who pierced him. You know, the Bible knows nothing about an invisible or secret second coming. It knows nothing about a rapture that is done in secret. That's not taught anywhere in the Bible. It says right here, every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him will see him. And you may be able to blow that off because you weren't there for the crucifixion. But have you ever pierced Christ? Have you ever been disobedient to his word? Have you ever disappointed him? When it comes to the way you live your life, when it comes to the way you react to his commands, the way you honor him in his tithe, the way you honor him in your sexual, uh, your sexual morality. Have you ever pierced Christ? This expression about piercing him comes from Zechariah 12 and 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look upon me on him whom they have pierced they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn he's going to bring it all back to our remembrance how many times that we have pierced him the Jews and the Gentiles who rejected him are going to see him. They're going to see that Jesus of Nazareth, whom they crucified, is indeed the Christ. And John goes on, he says, and all the tribes on the earth. So tribes, nations, peoples, and all the tribes on the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. This is a beating of the breast. This is a mourning uh, in despair without any hope of recovery. This is when you see unbelievers uh, in chapter 6 who hide themselves in caves and under the rocks and who scream out to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. Hide us from the wrath of God of the Lamb. They will ask for death and death won't come. Because he who is and he who was and he who is to come 
is now here. Christ, with his ministry on earth as a faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, is coming on the clouds. He who loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Lastly, we look at the fact that he is coming and he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Look at Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. This one like the son of man combines one person with both human and divine traits. Throughout the Old Testament, this this statement, the son of man is distinguished uh, from just mere humans. Ezekiel chapter two, verses one through five. And he said to me, son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak to you. And as he spoke to me, the spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. And he said, son of man, I will send you to the people of Israel, to a nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are imputed and stubborn. I will send them to you and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. You know, that's all sometimes you can hope to. That, you know, everybody, you know, I think it's so amazing that he ends the letter to all seven churches with he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit is saying to the churches. Understanding that everyone has ears and those who are not deaf can hear. But even those who hear sometimes can't hear. They can't see. Their heart doesn't recognize their mind won't yield and they don't know that they have had a prophet among them this son of man is greater than any mere human he's coming on the clouds which is again another testimony to who he is it's a clear symbol of divine authority Isaiah 19 and 1 an oracle concerning Egypt Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Man, let your heart melt before he melts it. 
understand who he is, bow down. It even happened to Nebuchadnezzar, the most outrageous king there was. Look at Daniel 434. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to the heaven and my reason returned to me. Remember, he was talking crazy, right? He was going to kill the three Hebrew boys. So the Lord turned him into almost an animal. But then when he humbled himself, his reason returned to him. It goes on. And I blessed the most high and praise and honor him who lives forever. For his dominion is a everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generations. He understood that this God was far greater than him. Jesus, when he comes back, he fulfills his role. He shows exactly who he is. Mark 14, 60-62. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked, Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. We see the fulfillment in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. When I saw heaven open up and behold a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now, hear this. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. This is his blood. And the name that is, which he is called, is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. What did the word tell us? That the word is a two-edged what? Sword. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and to rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When Jesus comes on his second advent, it is to do what? Raise the dead. It is to bring us back to our total understanding. He's going to judge the world, raise the dead, make all things new. This is not going to be a great revival of evangelism. He comes back to balance the books, to take care of hearers, and to punish those who have constantly rejected him.
he comes back on the clouds, which is a divine scene of majesty, comes back in triumph. Look at this, uh, turn to this because you need to see Jeremiah chapter 55 through 6. Jeremiah chapter 55 through 6. They shall ask the way to Zion with faces turned toward it saying, come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant covenant that will not be forgotten. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray, turning them away on the mountains. From mountain to hill they have gone. They have forgotten their fold. What amazes me here is the fact of there is an opportunity of repentance, a desire to go and join themselves with the Lord, uh, to be part of this everlasting uh, covenant, understanding that they have been lost and sinful and rebellious sheep. But then the indictment here on shepherds that have led them astray by not feeding them the pure word of God. that have cloaked their misunderstandings in evangelism, which is really evangelion. If you're not telling the truth about Christ to lead someone to Christ, then you're just lying. He shows here that when he comes back, all who have pierced him will see him in every tribe on the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. When John adds this, even so, amen, it's really the combination between a Greek and a Hebrew form of expressing great approval. And he's saying that all the peoples of the earth will wail on account of him. Now, John is not being sarcastic here. He's not being vindictive. But when Christians suffer persecution and the name of the Lord is being mocked, their cause can easily be despised. But this is not final. He shows us here that this vivid symbol, the wicked will be overthrown and God will be vindicated. Not that he needs our vindication, but that we will no longer merely be a disinterested spectator, that we will all see it. And those who had turned their back and rejected him will wail on account of their misunderstanding. That this God, in fact, will overthrow an evil world. He closes here in our passage this morning. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, he who is and he who was and he who is to come. Most time in the New Testament, whenever you see capital L, lowercase o-r-d, is speaking about Jesus Christ. All through the Old Testament, you will see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D is Yahweh. But 
in Revelation, there's only two times when you see uh, the Lord spell capital L, lowercase o, lowercase d, uh, lowercase r, lowercase d, that is speaking of Christ. And that is 11, 8, and 22, 20. Right here is speaking about God the Father. And it says that I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. He says, I'm before all things. I can outlast all things. Eternity is what I brought about. I am who is, who was, and who is to come. I am God the Almighty. The word they use here for almighty, pantor, crack, or, means he is the one that holds sway over all things. He is the ruler of all. He is sovereign in all things. He is the almighty God, and no one can resist his power. Everything that he proclaims will come to pass. Three things when Jesus comes back. He comes back to judge the world, raise the dead, and make all things new. And our reply should be, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, send your son in all of his majesty, in all of his royal depiction send him riding on the clouds the one who has been able to free us from our sins by his shed blood teach us now to honor you to prepare ourselves to prepare our hearts to turn away from those things that do not give you praise and glory and adoration to surrender our hearts Totally. It is not too late. But Lord, let us not continue to wait. You've promised us that you're coming like a thief in the night. So Lord, let us move as you're moving on our heart by your spirit and let us respond today. For tomorrow cannot be promised unless we belong to you. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen.